You're listening to a podcast from 702. Yes, hi, Azan. Good afternoon, everybody. So what we're hoping to do at 10 past five, he is getting dragged in and out of a few meetings, but I hope we're going to get Bantu Holomisa. And I'll tell you why we're talking to him today. Mm. It's 25 years today since he was pushed out of the ANC, he was Deputy Minister of Tourism and Environmental Affairs. And it was because he had raised issues around various things connected with corruption. And we thought 25 years later, it'd be really interesting to go back to that time and ask him if there was a moment then when the ANC might have actually mm. walked a different road in regard to corruption. I think he'll be a very interesting person to talk about a very current subject with a, a long historical perspective on it. So yes, isn't that interesting? If you could look back, yeah. those really critical turning points. There are always those moments. Some mm. people would say the arms deal was that moment. Yeah. His was before that, so let's see what he has to say. Really looking forward to that. That was in 1996. Speaking of anniversaries, the EFF marks its eighth birthday today. Sidi Madia, who has the sharpest eye I know on politics, will be in with us to talk about uh, what, how she views the party and what it's uh, accomplished or not over the last eight years. That's at 10 minutes past three. Back to school in a number of places. We'll go down to KZN with Nkosikona Duma and we'll look around Gauteng with Tando Kobeka. That's in the first half hour of the show. Um, Mango, uh, going into business rescue. What are the pilots who have worked for Mango over the years say? Jordan Butler is the Mango Pilot Association chair and our guest at 10 minutes past four. And then Joburg, every Monday we do hashtag fix my Joburg. Why does the city make such extensive use of water tankers? And what does it cost? Oh, John. You know, some of the problems that we have in our country are yes. the way they are because certain people want them to be that way. Yeah. And water trucks and water tanks are precisely one of those. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, when you think about it, whose interest is it in to not maintain our water systems? Someone's yeah. benefiting from supplying this water. There were allegations in one of the rural provinces, and I'm pretty sure it was in Pumalanga, that there were people who not only didn't maintain the water infrastructure, but actually actively were involved in breaking it because (laughs) they had a line of business in the water tankers. But Joburg, let's give them a chance. Let's hear from Joburg Water and from Ferial Hafaji. Those are our two guests at 10 to 4. Thank you. Yeah, that should be interesting. We have to ask these questions. Who is benefiting when problems never get fixed? 702. The Naked Scientist. Time for us to connect with our second Chris for this hour. And that is Dr. Chris Smith, the <laughs> Naked Scientist. We spoke to another Chris earlier on. So the hour of the Chris's. Maybe you guys should be a duo, Chris. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I had my first shot, my vaccine. Hooray! Yeah, so... So you should be bursting with antibodies now because, of course, you've actually had and recovered from COVID. Mm-hmm. So now you're topping up your antibody to superhuman levels if, you, if you've done that because, of course, you'll, you'll have some immune memory from the first time around oh, wow. which you'll have now built upon with the vaccine. So that's brilliant. Wow! I love that phrase, superhuman levels. <laughs> it's like something superpower about it, superhuman. Well, we're seeing some of that with the, with the. Have you been watching the Olympics? Of yes. course, we, we're seeing yes. a bit of superhuman, or what, what appears to be superhuman performance. I was watching the women cycling yesterday, yeah. and I've never seen anything like it. it was just <laughs> outstanding. The person, the, the lady who won, was miles ahead wow. for minutes at a time. It was just the most amazing thing. I've never seen anything like it. But you know, these people, they, they make me. You know, they just leave me in awe at how how good they are at what they do. They they must train so hard. Those 
those people. Absolutely. I was saying that about gymnastics earlier on. It's one of my favorites. I don't, I hardly get to see gymnastics, you know, especially at uh, this level of competition, if at all. So that's why the Olympics are such a treat. And um, it's gymnastics does that for me. I'm often in awe about what they manage to do. So it's an exciting time. And hopefully, uh, you know, both our countries bring back medals, impressive medals. Well, I didn't want to mention the hockey. I did, I did watch a bit of the, the hockey and, uh, um, and I didn't want to bring that up. But it, it was a good game and I thought it, England were going to dominate and then South Africa came back yes. quite strongly. Like it was one all and then unfortunately got pipped to the post a bit later on. But um, it was good. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, it, the Olympics is one of those things that I don't watch a lot of sport most of the year. But big sporting events like the World Cup, like the Euros, like the Olympics do draw me in. And then I mm-hmm. get kind of hooked on it and think, why don't I watch this stuff more often? It's actually really entertaining. It's not productive. I think it's just being busy, really. No, it's not, it's not productive, well, Chris. Well, that's true. It, it, but it is if it makes you feel kind of relaxed and then you have things to talk about on the radio. That's kind of beneficial. <laughs> I always think I could be using my time for my benefit. Watching other people make their That's dreams true. come true is a waste of my time. <laughs> All right, let's get to the lines. Uh, so many people itching to talk to you with their questions this afternoon. We start in Emerentia with Leone. Hi, Leone. Hello, Zania. Afternoon. Good afternoon to you and to Dr. Chris and the listeners. Something I've been wanting to ask for a long time. Can you hear me all right? Yes, loud and clear. Great. Um, I wanted to ask, a long time ago, my then gynecologist husband used to say to me I would melt all the fat around my kidneys because I had such hot water in my bath. (sighs) And I don't know whether he was joking or not, but many, many years later, now I'm nearly 84, when I had orthotics fitted for my shoes, the orthotist at the orthopedic clinic said to me, I've lost all the fat in my feet, the fat layer in my feet, so I'm walking on bones, just bones and skin. Mm-hmm. And I have to have special orthotics. And I said, oh, is that from having boiling hot water in my bath? And he said he didn't know. So I thought I'd ask Dr. Chris and see what he knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Leonis. I think it's unlikely. To be honest, your husband was sort of right about there being a lot of fat around your kidneys. You do have a fat pad that surrounds cushions and protects the kidneys. And you do have a lot of fat all over the body anyway to protect various things and also to provide insulation. Fat's a poor conductor of heat. But it's very unlikely that you're going to cause serious harm from the bath water to your fat distribution. Unfortunately, as we age, like all these things with age, some things don't run and last as well as other things. And there is a loss of connective tissue, elastic tissue, and uh, another uh, toughened material around the body, and fat redistributes when we get older. So I don't think it's because of hot baths that's done that, because if it were the hot baths that were doing it, it would have done it at the time, it wouldn't have led to it happening many, many years later. So I I think probably the likelihood is that it's just age creeping up on you a bit. I don't think it's because of your hot baths. Thank you so much. Thank you, dear. Thank you, Leone. Take care. Uh, Next, we go to Mark in Norwood. Afternoon, Mark. Hello, uh, Dr. Chris. Uh, in the 1970s, the American Space Agency sent an unmanned spaceship into space with computers and recording machines and microphones. Has there been any report back on that spaceship? 
I'm not familiar with what that craft is. I suspect some some space journalists or people who are more familiar with that particular era in space uh, adventuring will know. Um, but there have been many examples of things being sent into space with various things attached to them, um, which have gone all over the place. The most famous, of course, being the two Voyagers, which continue to send back signals to us here on Earth, despite having left the Earth and have now travelled billions of kilometres away from us. It takes nearly a day for signals to arrive back from those probes. Um, I don't know the one that you're specifically referring to, though. If anybody does know about this, um, mm -hmm. do let us know. Right. Thanks for the question, Mark. Uh, Andrew in Hamanskral. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Azza. How uh, are you? Dr. Chris, hi. Mm. I'm fine. Um, Dr. Chris, in November 1572, a Danish astronomer called, I'm not sure if it's Tico or Tico Brahe, observed um, a supernova. Actually, you could see it even during the day, you know, from Earth to the naked eye. But now apparently the star disappeared after some time, and then it was rediscovered in 1948, some 376 years or so later. Now I want to know if it, if, how, how sure were they that it was the same star that exploded in, in oh. 1672? Because I mean that's a long, very, very long time. Thank you, Andrew. And, uh, Hi, yeah. Andrew. Uh, yes, Andrew. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right to be a bit sceptical, Andrew, because um, a supernova is a catastrophic explosion that marks the end of the lifetime of a certain size of star. Stars which are sufficiently big to go through a supernova phase, if effectively what has happened is that they've burned all of their nuclear fuel, which was producing pressure that kept the star inflated, this led to the star collapsing in on itself, and as it does so, it causes the intensification of the nuclear fusion process inside the star, which then obliterates it and causes it to blow itself to smithereens. That's very energetic, very powerful and very bright, and we can see these things appear as a glow, which um, is, is seen for a period of time and is seen over vast distances in space but it only lasts for a period of time. It doesn't go on and on and on and on and on because, of course, the energy is radiating outwards and spreading out through space, and so eventually that bright light of the supernova will dim away. Uh, so, therefore, if you saw that and then came back 300 years later and still saw it, you'd be very suspicious that another star in that patch of the cosmos, uh, i.e. a near neighbour or something which was in line in terms of your line of sight, but perhaps closer or further away than that star that went supernova, is now itself going supernova. I'd be rather sceptical that, that something would produce the kind of glow and intensity and brightness of a supernova explosion and last for centuries. Mm. Andrew? Hello. But then, sorry, can you just quickly ask? But then they say it was rediscovered in the constellation called Cassiopeia in the Northern Hemisphere. I don't know. Could it be in the same area that Hugo Brady lived or could I didn't quite catch that, I'm sorry. Uh, the, yes, go ahead, Andrew. So the, the star was rediscovered in the Northern Hemisphere in the constellation called Cassiopeia yeah. in 1948. Yes. So what I mean is that is it, is this guy, this Brahe, did he live anywhere near where the star oh. was discovered? Okay. Did he live anywhere near where the star was discovered or could be seen from here? From, yes, yes, I mean that. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. I don't know where he came from. Mm. All right. Andrew, thank uh, you very from, much. He came from Denmark. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. So he was Danish. 
Okay. Andrew, very, thank you so much for those two questions. Uh, but it helps us understand, of course, these supernovas a little bit more after Chris's explanation. Next, we've got Kevin in St. Shurin. Hello, Kevin. Hi. I've got a question about the um, uh, COVID vaccination. I had my first Pfizer shot. And here in South Africa, there's a 40-day waiting period before the two. And a week before my second shot, I contracted COVID. Thank goodness it was symptomless. But now my question is, I've had various opinions from various doctors as to how long I wait now for my second shot. Some mm-hmm. say because I wasn't hospitalized 10 days after my test. Mm-hmm. Some say 28 days. Some say three months. Yes. Um, but, and, and even the COVID hotline when I phoned mm-hmm. them didn't know the answer. Yeah, we also have a colleague who's had uh, different responses. They had COVID and it's still under a month and they wondered where, they were wondering when they should vaccinate. And it's Pfizer uh, as well, Kevin. So, Chris, the stipulated yeah. waiting time before you can get vaccinated? Hello, Kevin. The answer is that I don't think anyone knows for oh. sure the answer to this question because... When they did the trials, of course, they were testing how does this vaccine perform when we have a certain period of time between the two doses. They initially started with one month and then worked out who was protected and who wasn't. This was subsequently refined and revised, largely instigated by the UK but at the beginning of this year to maximise the rate at which people could be protected by their first dose of vaccine. And that saw the interval lengthened to 12 weeks. Uh, It's since been reduced in some cases, again, in order to maximise the rate at which people can be vaccinated to uh, doubly vaccinated against the Delta variant to eight weeks. But no one said, well, let's do a trial where we look at people who've, after one dose, had coronavirus. What's their level of immunity and when should we boost them? So we don't actually know because we haven't got formal trial data on this yet, but we're going to learn from people like yourself who run into the virus before they've completed their vaccination course. We're going to learn inevitably, but at the moment we don't know for sure. Mm. It's best always in any circumstance to wait until you're better and not trying to fight something off before you come in with a vaccine because a vaccine is a physiological stress on the body. It pressurizes the immune system to respond. And if you're already infected with things, doing that more is probably a less good idea. So I would say, and you're saying that your infection was asymptomatic, but it would be worth giving your body a chance to get over that first because the infection for real is a very good stimulus to the immunity that you'll be building from the vaccine anyway. It will reinforce it. So it's almost like it was a second dose of vaccine. So I I would wait at least a few weeks before you then have the follow-up because that way your system will have recovered, you'll have calmed, your immune system will have calmed down from its acute response to the virus. And then you could go in for the second dose of the vaccine, uh, you know, as I say, three weeks, a month, two months later, and almost certainly that you'll you'll help to rekindle any benefit that the infection will have conferred upon your mm-hmm. immune memory. And then you'll have also had a double dose. So you'll fulfill all the criteria to be double jabbed. And that should give you really strong um, and long lived protection. Right. So that's why there's that uh, waiting period after you've had you've contracted COVID, because that was going to be my follow up question. Why do we need to wait? So it's about the body's immune system kind of recovering from having fought an infection because you're introducing this agent that does uh, stress the immune system. Yeah, that's right. And the way vaccines work, they tend to work best when 
they're going into a situation where the body isn't already in a state of trying to respond to things mm -hmm. because under cer certain circumstances, sometimes if you overstimulate the immune system in a certain direction, it can actually have the opposite effect mm -hmm. and it will turn down a response. So you don't want to habituate or turn down the response to the challenge. You want to boost it. And so letting your immune system sort of gently calm down after it's had its response and then coming back in and stimulating again is likely to uh, translate into a better response. But as I say, I am speculating and building on my instincts here. Mm -hmm. This is not evidence-based because we haven't got the evidence yet from a, a proper clinical trial of what happens to people uh, like this situation. Right. Okay. Um, Kevin, thank you very much. Great. Right. Thank you. Yeah. A, quick, a quick related one. Mm. Um, exercise afterwards, my doctor said four weeks, and then driving home, they announced that the Springbok team who had COVID yeah. um, are playing the match on Saturday, which is quite a bit less than four weeks after they, their 10-day mm -hmm. period. So is the virus immune to rugby players or what? <laughs> that so, I get four weeks and the Springboks can play the match yeah. on Saturday. So four weeks after the, the what? Your, your positive test, your having yes, COVID. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Having recovered. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the answer to this, Kevin, is that there is no, again, 100% guaranteed answer. Okay. One, what one shouldn't do is to try to force yourself to do things which are clearly having a bad effect on you. But if you've had an inconsequential, trivial infection and you've bounced back and you're absolutely fine, you should listen to your body. And if your body says, I feel absolutely fine, you should do as much as feels good. But if, on the other hand, you're struggling to get out of bed, you're absolutely exhausted and you're clearly suffering for sort of post-viral syndrome, forcing yourself to exercise vigorously is not going to help. Little bits of exercise, a gentle build-up, is, is good. Anything that kind of gets you beginning to get back into that rhythm is a good thing. Forcing yourself when your body is clearly protesting is not good. So listen to your body and do as much as you feel like doing. There is no sort of gold standard rule here. It's all down to the individual and how you feel. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Next is go to Cosmo City with MJ. Hi, MJ. Hi. How are you? Super, thank you. I'm good. Azani, I want to ask... Um uh, uh, naked scientists uh, about uh, people with um, zero positive blood. I saw some research that were done by uh, America and Sweden mm. where they found that, like, I mean, uh, people with uh, zero positive blood, COVID 19 does not, like, I mean, uh, present uh, severe symptoms and so forth. So, what is good about zero positive blood? Okay, all positive. I will, I will, I will, listen, I will listen to the radio. Okay, MJ, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure we're referring to all positive. You're absolutely right. People who have got O, in other words, group O blood, mm. when people looked at who was cropping up with the worst infections, they found that the people who were worst off were not people who had group O. Mm. And the way they did this is they said, let's have a look at how frequently different blood groups occur in the population. If blood grouping makes no difference to your outcome with coronavirus, we should see people with severe disease in the same proportions as those blood groups are in the population. And what they saw were fewer people with group O in intensive care, for example, than you would expect based on how many of those people are in the population. It was a modest difference. It was about 10 to 12 percent fewer. The people who were there more often than you would expect based on how common their blood group is in the population were group A, 
So it looks like Group A is a slight risk factor for worse coronavirus disease, and Group O is a slight protection against severe coronavirus disease. We don't know exactly why this is happening. It may be nothing to do with the blood group itself. It may be that there are genetic elements, bits of DNA, which are close to the parts of the DNA that control blood group. And because you have one, you're more likely to have the other because bits of DNA next door to each other tend to be inherited together. So the blood groups may well be a marker for other genetic functions that are nearby to them, which do have an influence on coronavirus uh, behavior in the body. We don't know for sure, but it's certainly true that people with group O blood crop up in, in the emergency department and in intensive care less often than you would expect on the basis of how many of them there are in the population. So it's a small wow. protective effect. Yes. Oh, MJ, thanks for that question. Uh, didn't see that coming. Let's go to Tebucho in Bononi. Hi, Tebucho. Hi, hi. How are you? Good, thank you. There's been lots of space yeah. talk. You also have uh, space on the mind? Uh, sorry? No, your question. Go ahead. Yeah. No, my question to the next scientist, um, <laughs> firstly, what, what is the ultimate intention of NASA and those who explore Mars? Is it to inhabit Mars or to try and mine resources from the from, from Mars? Because why would they spend so much financial resources on on a planet that they know very well that it has um, uh, it's 100% thin in terms of atmosphere? No human can actually survive, uh, especially yeah. for longer periods. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that, yeah. especially in light of Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson's latest exploits. Uh, yes, Chris? Uh, I think really all of the above. Probably the biggest motivation to go is, you know, as any explorer will tell you, because it's there and someone wants to be the first in the same reason that NASA sent people to the moon so that they could go and say they'd been there and to press technology to the limits and press human endeavor and human spirit to the limits because out of that comes good things. Uh, new breakthroughs technologically, materials, science, new breakthroughs in um, various aspects of rocketry and, and uh, travel, all those kinds of things bring back enormous benefits to us um, in the long run because you can translate those into a better life for everyone down here back on Earth. In terms of exploiting Mars, that's probably in the near term low likelihood because the sheer physical constraints of the distances involved, it's at least a nine-month journey at, le at, at the smallest amount, possibly even longer to get to Mars. Um, you've got to also then recover samples off of Mars back to Earth and that's going to take a huge amount of energy to do that. And, uh, and then also you've got the whole question that was being highlighted, how do you keep your people alive on Mars? Now, people are working on that. They've developed various ha um, habit uh, habitation domes and things that could be used as a, a place for people to live on Mars. Mm. But it's a vile place. As, as one person who I know who's a space journalist put it, Mars is terrible. You just don't want to go there. Not just because it's like the worst nightclub you ever visited, no atmosphere. <laughs> it's, it's a horrible place. It's freezing cold. Uh, it's even colder than Cape Town is at the moment, and I know they're pretty cold because they've all been moaning to me about it. Yeah. Um, it's It's got very, very horrible weather, which is dust storms and things. There's lots of radiation because it doesn't have an ozone layer to screen it out, and you can't go outside for a walk without your spacesuit on because there's no nothing to breathe. Mm -hmm. Who wants to go there? Well, let's send robots and let them do it. But on the other hand, there are some jobs that we just can't do very well as a robot yeah. yet. So things like looking for life on Mars actually sending life to Mars might be the best way to go and look for it. So that's 
that's probably the most comprehensive reason, set of reasons as to why people want to go because it's there. Someone wants to be first mm. to test out technology and to look for life. Yes, right, Chris. Just like that, our time is over. Mm. It flies. But it's been fun though, hasn't it? it? Has. All good things come in small packages. Yes. <laughs> Until next week. Thanks a lot, Chris. Until next time. Bye.